This is Converge, a podcast from Convera. Come with us as we shape the future of finance. Welcome to another episode of Converge. I'm very excited about today's episode. We have some great guests from across the fintech sphere. Uh, a couple guys from Money 2020 joining us, Ian Horn, Mickey Tisfaya, and our very own Scott Johnson from Convera, the VP of Technical Program Management. This is an exciting subject today. We're talking about a new book that Ian, the head of content at EU, uh, Money 2020 EU, is going to be releasing in the coming months called Why DeFi Matters. And DeFi stands for decentralized finance, for those who don't know. Uh, Ian, welcome. Mickey, good to have you again. And Scott, welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, Ian, I'll start with you. Can you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about uh, where you come from? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the head of content for the EU at Money 2020. So along with Mickey and also Gina Clark, who's the content director, uh, we put together the schedule for what you see on stages in Amsterdam each year, which is a hell of a privilege and a really fun thing to do. Uh, prior to that, I was a relationship manager for wealth managers and financial advisors in the UK. So that's inspired my book, but we'll get into that in due course. Awesome. And Mickey? Hey, Alex, how are you doing? Good to be back on Converge. Um uh, as we were saying earlier on, we had a great time shooting a previous episode. Uh, and um, as Ian touched on, uh, the content leader for Money 2020 Europe, and I work alongside Ian and Gina in putting together the content at our show in Amsterdam. Yeah, exciting. It was a great show. And Scott, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Alex. Happy to be here. So I'm Scott Johnson. I lead a team that helps manage the technology and product transformation within Convera. We're on a really exciting journey. I've been in the space for about 15 years, bouncing between roles in product and strategy and now program management. Really excited for the discussion today. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Scott. So Ian, let's go to your book real quickly, because there's a lot to cover in this book. It's a really terrific book. It presents a lot of concepts about decentralized finance, uh, cryptocurrencies, digital assets, all within the umbrella of how we should be thinking about these things, not just as investment vehicles, but as true use cases in the world of finance that are emerging. And I've talked about these use cases in previous episodes on Converge. So excited to get your opinion. But tell us first, why did you write this book? Why now? Yeah. Well, first, thanks, Alex, for the kind words uh, on the book. Uh, why I wrote the book? So many reasons, really. So as I said earlier, I used to be a relationship manager for the leading investors in the UK. And I remember around 2017, obviously, the value of Bitcoin shot through the roof. And all of a sudden, everyone was talking about this. Every investment manager was being asked by clients, should I invest in Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was so interesting to see this and to try and actually try to educate myself on the topic. And I found it really hard to get clear information on what was going on and what the real reason reasons were for the value behind uh, Bitcoin and, and, of course, later other crypto assets. Um, I really just felt there was a need for a book that gave a balanced view of what's really going on. You know, I'm not selling crypto. I don't hate crypto. I, I'm actually quite enthused by what it can do. But the real, the real passion, the real motivation here was to, to actually apply some, some genuine thought and say, look, this is what decentralized finance really means. Here's what it's doing and here's what it's done. And to give people a real chance to evaluate what's happening in this space before they, they draw their own conclusions. Yeah, that's great. And can, can you just tell our audience what decentralized finance or DeFi is at a high level? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a new form of financial system to a point where interactions are peer-to-peer or they're peer-to-protocol at the very least. And what that means really is you've got no need for intermediaries. So we're doing transactions and we're doing all sorts of financial communications without banks, payment providers necessarily, and so on. So decentralized finance is made possible by blockchain and cryptocurrencies, which are the the infrastructure for the protocols and the tokens as well. Um, so basically, it's a self-sustaining system that is governed by the community rather than governed by a select few who control the power. Now, there's all sorts to it, and it gets really complicated. But the idea, uh, essentially, is that you have community-led and community-run uh, financial systems. Yeah. So take us back to the seminal year of 2008, which is where you begin the arc of the story in your book after the wake of the financial crisis. Can you set the stage for decentralized finance as a meaningful concept emerging during this time? And then the Bitcoin white paper coming out of seemingly nowhere in the wake of the financial crisis? Yeah. So uh, as I say in the book, the, the, combination, or the connection between the two is, is quite strong and at the same time, maybe overstated mm. too. So. Um, you know, the Bitcoin white paper comes out in 2008 and talks about this idea of peer-to-peer transactions without the need for any, again, intermediary. The first block, that the Genesis block that's um, birthed for Bitcoin actually has a link to a Financial Times article about the collapse of the traditional financial system. So it's it's all quite interesting. I'm not sure how much the emergence of it is linked to uh, the 2008 crash, but the timing is really, really quite something. Yeah. So the the Bitcoin white paper, if you've not read it, I would, you know, you guys obviously have, but I know many people haven't. I'd recommend they do so because it's a really concise paper that sets out, you know, the basis for this currency and, and secure peer-to-peer transactions. It's not the first cryptocurrency, um, but it does, is the first one to really make use of blockchain. And rather than get technical, I think what I'll say is that basically allows the users of the network to make, view, and verify transactions. And it includes a hashing function too, which makes it basically impossible to reverse any past transactions or hack the chain. And to my knowledge, no one's been able to do that for Bitcoin yet. So it takes messaging um, technology and applies it to finance. That's ultimately what it is. Bitcoin is data. The money here, the money on the asset here is data. And and basically, we've applied messaging technology to that. Mm -hmm. So it's a lovely idea that we have this connection which is safe secure and just works and again as i say it, it emerges at the same time as the 2008 to 9 global financial crisis so obviously why would you want a new financial system where well, you might want one at a time where faith in the existing one is very low uh you know this crash is something as we know was caused by a lack of regulation it was caused by bad credit it was caused by predatory lending it was caused by greed it was caused by subprime mortgages you know and, and given to people who had very little chance of of paying them back. So in a way, I think 2008 and 2009 exposes most of, if not all of the ills of the existing system. And lo and behold, we have Bitcoin saying, maybe we shouldn't trust the banks here. Maybe there's a chance of something completely new and completely different. So that's where the book starts. It kind of maps out that story of the technology emerging just at the right time as we have this problem. Now, the actual, you know, the proper rise of Bitcoin takes years. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Uh, we really see it, as I say, 2017 is when we really see that spike in the value of Bitcoin, which gets people talking yeah. about it. And perhaps some would argue that really it's the increase in the value that made the conversation mm-hmm. happen. But the timing of the two things is, I think, linked to a point. 
And uh, and then, of course, we have DeFi, which builds upon, upon Bitcoin. I think that's the most important next part of the story. If Bitcoin allows peer-to-peer transactions, then DeFi is what allows us to really fund things with this money and different money as well. Create, you know, it allows the creation of new tokens that can be made to do anything that our financial system can do. Uh, and then some things yeah. that it can't. So that's kind of the setup to it and i think it's a really important thing to understand that the, the emergence of bitcoin isn't just technology it's societal and it also reflects where we are in our financial yeah system it's a fascinating point. story really thanks for the context so with the backdrop of of bitcoin and the white paper the financial crisis trying to introduce a new new way of transferring value storing value moving money peer-to-peer Let's discuss the notion of money itself being upgraded and the pros and cons of upgrading money in, a, in its current form, because there's a lot of you know, CBDCs and digital currencies that are emerging with real world use cases. They're being tested, not just in theory on the world stage. So let's keep this particular discussion point to money versus other areas of tokenized value. But why do you think we need to upgrade money itself? Doesn't it work perfectly fine in its current form for a lot of people? Why or why not? And I want to let Ian weigh in on this and then have Scott react to this um, as well, because Scott comes from a bit more of a traditional finance background. I would love to hear this from the engineering technical perspective as well. Sure. I mean, to just to start, I don't think innovation's ever worked like that, has it? I mean, we can say, did it need to be upgraded? I mean, did we need to upgrade horses and carts, for instance? I don't <laughs> think we necessarily did. Um, it's just, it, it allows us to do more things. That, I think, is the key, the key point to it. Now, you have money that can be programmed to do you know all sorts of things you can make a payment and then have royalties built into it for instance you can uh, have debts that basically uh, get liquidated at certain points based on certain conditions being made so it allows to do more things with our money and i think that can be a good thing and it can be a mm-hmm. bad thing i think when you upgrade money like this it ultimately means that good things and bad things can happen but probably more quickly so it really depends what's happening with it. I, I think that's always going to be the case with technology as you improve things. So uh, I think the way to look at it is money, in a way, has always been tokenized, right? Money, if you look through history, money could be all sorts of things. It could be rocks. It could be coffee. It could be salt. It could be silver. We've had all sorts of things historically which have been money. And, and to that point, money has always been a token. But I guess if I can add some new jargon, I really don't want to do this, but in a sense, DeFi has, has kind of added a, a hyper tokenization to money, which allows us to trade things more quickly and probably find liquidity in new ways. So is it good? Is it bad? I think that's a really tough question. And I try to set up the kind of parameters for what good and bad really mean uh, in mm-hmm. the book. Um, but I would say, what I would say is it allows to do more. It adds agility and it adds speed into yep. the network. Whether that's good or bad really depends on what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that agility and speed is really critical here. In my world where we think about cross-border payments and cross-border risk management day in and day out, I think everyone recognizes that cross-border commerce has been really challenging historically. Payments were, were a big part of that. They're slow, opaque, inefficient when you're crossing borders, at least historically. It means managing multiple payment systems, as most cross-border payments are actually two local payments that are chained together. And that can make reconciliation really difficult, which creates a number of downstream issues for businesses that are trying to purchase inputs or sell things across borders. And then volatility makes it even harder, right? If you're a if you're inputting a good, importing a good as an input into your product, any sort of volatility in FX can make it very hard to understand the cost of that input 
which makes it hard to price and creates all sorts of downstream potential problems of profitability. So as globalization has ramped up, these problems have really exacerbated. So there's definitely a need to figure out ways to make money smarter, to make money faster, to make it easier for businesses to do these sorts of transactions that ultimately create a lot of good for the world. Crypto, maybe it could help address these problems. And I think we'll get into that. So Mickey, you're the head of Money 2020. Uh, you know a lot about money. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, or at least you're one of the many heads of Money 2020. Can you tell us your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, so I think, I guess when I'm hearing, you know, all of you kind of raise really interesting points about it, I think the initial starting point that you discussed with Bitcoin and the philosophical or political point i think i wonder if that kind of muddies the waters a bit and i think makes the conversation around cryptocurrency or i guess the kind of underlying technology blockchain a bit more challenging right i think so much of the early adoption felt like it had a very strong political element mm-hmm. to it it could be the case but i think um it's also very feasible right like you might have a philosophical political starting point for that technology but a lot of its value and use cases emerge in different ways. And I think to an extent, because there's so much excitement that was generated 2017, more recently as well, I think we've seen a lot of a lot of interest in that kind of consumer side of, of cryptocurrency, that some of the conversation is muddied. And so I think some of the kind of less interesting parts of, of, of financial services, right? You know, I think reconciliation of funds between entities are perhaps not as yeah. exciting as the idea of creating a politically charged um, financial system, right? Yeah. So I think that kind of means that there's some muddied conversations. And I think that maybe makes the conversation use a bit of a veracity in regards to impact yeah. and ability to transform the ecosystem. Yeah, that's a great point. So let's let's make sure we hone in on some of, you know, why, you know, how, how this can be interpreted in a, in a business lens, um, the applicability of, of DeFi and digital currencies to the business world. So Ian, is DeFi suitable for corporate and business-to-business transactions? Why or why not? And what problems could DeFi solve for B2B transactions in your view? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. And again, the question gets confusing is, is not just because of volatility that this has been mentioned, but also you know, legal uncertainties around crypto. We're seeing the SEC, uh, you know, trying to figure out if they can classify XRP as a, as a uh, yeah. security right now, um, which is a, you know, a really confusing conversation. We might get into that. I mean, I think they figured it out for the most part, but yeah. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> yeah. But is, you know, for the most part, it's, that's pretty hazy, right? And um, it's a little hazy on the edges. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And there are, Certain use cases I think we can see emerging in B2B. I'd be really keen for your take on, on what you see working on this because I think you guys have really got your boots on the ground with this one. I mean, the, the opportunities I can see would be initially cross-border payments. And again, it doesn't necessarily need to be crypto when I talk about this. It could just be the technologies, uh, or sorry, the uh, basically things that are inspired by the technologies of DeFi because you see JP Morgan has its JPM yeah. coin, which is very helpful for moving assets. Uh, within a continent. Uh, PayPal has just literally this week launched a stable coin, which could ease the flow of payments between nations. I'm pretty sure of that. So I think there's an opportunity for assets to be moved kind of en masse from from place to place. Uh, I also see a big uh, opportunity for treasury management and payment settlement 
certainly with B2B, if, if you're having issues with suppliers paying up or, you know, and so on, uh, I can see why having your communications held on a blockchain might smooth that process and make it easier for people to reliably uh, get paid. So, yeah, I mean, at this point, I think the talk really is more about DeFi's potential. I don't think we're necessarily seeing this yeah. kind of thing happen on a huge scale and by everyone. Um, I also think there's a, a big case to be made around expertise. How many businesses actually have the expertise to properly leverage DeFi? And I think, again, corporates, their their biggest ob- obligation to stakeholders really is to you know uphold the trust that's put in them and, and to responsibly govern yeah. themselves. So I, th- I think you know the, the technology itself, I think, is good enough. But but ironically, given that DeFi is all about trustlessness, I think trust is still really important. But again, I'm so keen to hear what what yeah. you and Scott have to say on this because I feel like you guys have a real a really great insight into into where we are right well, now. Well, yeah, let's take, let's let Scott take the floor because he's very um, it, uh, tuned into our our technical roadmap at Convera, and obviously we're uh, a major B two B payments cross border facilitator. So Scott, what have you what have you seen going on in this in this area within Convera? Yeah, so I think Ian's right that it's still really early days in this space. And and the idea of using decentralized finance tools in Convera is still quite far off for yeah. us as, as I don't think there's enough maturity or stability yet in this space for us to make a long-term investment in, in integrating these tools into our platform. Never say never, but it, it's not on our, our short-term roadmap. Yeah. I think uh, the, as Ian mentioned, the, the core technology of DLT is really interesting. And, and I think JP Morgan Chase's use of it was a was an interesting baby early canary in the coal mine here. Um, if you think about DLT, what part of its power is acting as a shared database that um, that multiple counterparties that don't fully trust each other can can use. So you can think about utility there in terms of know your customer obligations, being able to share information on the nature of a business or yeah. an individual for sanctions handling for all of these these communications that have to happen between banks to keep our financial system safe and keep money moving. Um, and so things like Corda, I think have been interesting s- steps in that direction, still early yeah. days, but there's a lot of potential there. Um, beyond that, I think as, as Ian mentioned, because it's early days, we don't really see stability or predictability or, or certainly regulatory certainty in this space yet. Uh, and I think until we achieve some of these things, we won't really see businesses adopting these tools in mass. It does take an investment to adopt these tools. And generally, a lot of businesses will invest for the long term rather than the short term. And until some of this perceived chaos starts to calm down, um, I think we'll continue to talk about this being a future thing rather than a current thing. Yeah, it's absolutely true. But at the same time, you know, there's a very visible sort of global roadmap around attempts being made to regulate the space. There's obviously been more progress in certain regions than others. Uh, the U.S. is lagging behind Europe, for example, in terms of getting that legislation to the floor and passing it. Um, but then there's also, you know, the, the G20, who's uh, in discussions and has a roadmap for um, offering recommendations for global crypto and, and digital asset regulations. So it's really quite, you know, in motion. It's it's not something that uh, is stalled. And and I mean, how are you? Mickey, how are you seeing this evolve in your world? You talk with a lot of fintechs. You talk with the other side, you know, who are really in this space. What are you hearing from them and what's their pulse on this? And are they optimistic about regulations in the near future? I think that is certainly the sense I get from from speaking to folks. I think there is the expectation that coming regulatory clarity and 
and when we previously did an episode that 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 was also even emerging in, in the US as well um or at least some type of legal action i think that is something that's been looked at in terms of providing some of the support maybe to get some some more validity in the space where i'm and again maybe you know as ian was saying given your your closeness as well to to the ground where i'm unsure about the with any kind of regulatory support that emerges is again to go back to like the early or some of the kind of cultures that exist within DeFi, right? I think there are multiple conversations and multiple communities within it. So from the business perspective, I think regulatory certainty is great, but some of the opportunities then that are kind of spoken a lot about, I'm not sure where the, where they would be at that point, right? I think cross-border transfers, for instance, sounds like a great area for for this technology to work in but it's a heavily regulated area yeah. with what we've seen over the last you know 18 months is it's going to get way more regulated in one way or another right with with sanctions and this kind of re kind of i guess some of the kind of early um political tensions starting to emerge as well again um between different countries i think that's going to sh- place more 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 str- more stringent requirements on 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 firms operating in that space and i think that defi component where there isn't accountability and cent- centralization i think that feels to me like it then starts to become a difficult thing to achieve and, and i don't know if that's something you see as well in terms of you know the technology again kind of playing some role internally within big companies, maybe for yeah. their processes, but not necessarily in a widespread kind of paradigm. That's shift. what's, yeah, that's, it seems hard. Yeah, go ahead, Scott. Sorry, sorry, Alex. See, it, it is hard to imagine that the anonymous or pseudo anonymous pieces of crypto can survive regulatory scrutiny. Mm-hmm. We all have an obligation ultimately as, as players in the broader financial services landscape to keep bad money out of the system. So things like sanctions are, just the cost of doing business here. And so as DeFi and crypto becomes um, more regulated, I think to your point, sanctions will become a day-to-day part of life and regulators will look for people to hold accountable for, for breaches and regulation. So DeFi, I think it does get really hard. Yeah, and, and that, that sort of leads me into these next two questions. And I think we can lump these two together, but it's the idea of, I feel like, you know, with the introduction of DeFi, with Bitcoin uh, to the masses, so to speak, and then to the financial realm, um, you know, seeing the value within some of these technologies. Obviously, it's sort of spurned innovation in the TradFi space. You know, payment rails are upgrading as we speak. The proliferation of real-time payment schemes is everywhere. There's improvements in the speed of payments delivered over SWIFT and SWIFT GPI, moves toward establishing 24-7 markets for liquidity. This is inspired by capabilities that we see unlocked by crypto, blockchain, DLT, and DeFi. So, you know, if these traditional pay systems, first of all, they've been inspired, obviously, by, by the movement of this technology, starting with Bitcoin. And what it looks like to me is they've adopted aspects and made them their own, in a sense. So does this Ian, does this reduce the need for DeFi solutions? Why or why not? And, you know, what are we going to see? Is this sort of just going to make the whole prior image of crypto fade into the background? And it's just going to sort of become part of the traditional banking system over time. 
in your view? How's this evolution going to take place? Because it's clearly already getting interwoven. Yeah, I, I think it moves the conversation along for sure. And uh, and as you rightly point out, we've seen DeFi inspire so many different changes, which is why when writing the book, it wasn't purely about the world of DeFi. It's also about the technologies and the, and the institutions that it's inspired to improve yeah. their technologies. Um, do, does this reduce the need for DeFi? I think there's a maybe and a maybe not. So, you know, on functionality, I think we can see that innovation in regulated markets is catching up. But at the same time, it, you know, it needs to be slower, you know, for all the legal and, and compliance reasons we yeah. kind of touched upon. Implementation needs to be more careful. So I think DeFi's first mover advantage is, is de- certainly eroded yeah. at this point. But I think it still stands. And I think there are still opportunities through open source innovation and so on for it to continue being some you know, degree ahead of traditional finance and to do certain things that traditional finance can't or won't do. Yeah. Um, I, I guess there are other things to be mindful of, which is that you know traditional finance relies on on profit margins as well to exist, and, and they're not necessarily bad. I think people say profit like is the, the worst thing in the world, but obviously that pays wages, funds research, you know, upholds the strength of our financial system and whatever. Um, but ultimately, an interesting thing here, of course, if you can reduce that into a line of code, then financial services need to rethink their value add. So I think DeFi can continue to kind of force TradFi into behaving differently. Um, but of course, I think the need for DeFi might be considered diminished unless, of course, you you really do believe in that politics and that philosophy of decentralization. And, uh, you know, that, that position currently of being very pro-decentralization or pro-Bitcoin alone or, or basically pro-anything but the fiat system it is... You know, it's niche outside of crypto, but I don't know. I, I feel like we live in strange times right now. Our media, our politics are, you know, polarized. An <laughs> um, and if the, you know, and yeah, totally, you know, and if the, the right or the wrong political people, you know, pick up the ball on this and, and really run with it, then, then who knows, right? Uh, you know, it's not really surprising to me that several U.S. senators have been really vocal on their stance yeah. on crypto and have tried to use it as a, as a mm-hmm. vote winner. So, yeah. It's, uh, I, I think there's a lot of people as well, though. I think we also need to look at the existing system. And I think that's where you guys come in really strongly, because I think people often advocate for crypto and DeFi without really understanding the current payment, payment infrastructure and why it is the way it is. And, uh, I, you know, I think that's an important point. Yeah. Um, I'll let you respond, Scott. Otherwise, I can move on. Up to you. Yeah. So I think, I think who knows is probably a pretty good response here. It's, um, trying to predict the far future is foolish. I do think the underlying technology here could have meaningful value for us going forward. The smart contract is such a powerful tool. And whether it's it's layered on top of crypto or a stable coin or CBDC, I think there's, there's going to be power to that. We will see it adopted by TradFi organizations, particularly as they interact with each other and work with each other. And we'll see it, um, I, I suspect we'll see it adopted in mass in areas like logistics where there are a lot of semi-trusted, untrusted intermediaries involved in a, in a value stream where, where you can really see the value of that, that shared database and the smart contracts you can build on top of it. But in terms of DeFi itself, the decentralized element of it, I think Ian's right. It's weird times, hard to predict the future, uh, but I suspect we'll see more adoption by TradFi. And, and if I was to place a bet, I would see DeFi kind of fading away over time, the decentralized part of it. 
So will DeFi fade away over time? The question remains to be seen, but tune in next week for part two of Why DeFi Matters with Ian Horn, Scott Johnson, and Mickey Tesfaya right here on Converge. Converge.